Welcome back to Scholars and Saints, the University of Virginia Mormon Studies podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Betts. I'm joined today by Amechi Okafor, a doctoral student in history at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. Mr. Okafor specializes in West African history, identity, masculinity, and the Nigerian Civil War, and in Mormon studies. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Ibadan. Thanks for joining me today, Amechi. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. So, Amechi, one of your areas of research is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its culture in Nigeria. So why, for you, why Mormonism? What, what was the draw to, to Mormon studies in particular? I think the draw was the fact that most of the things I saw that was were, were from West Africa only came from the church. Like the informations, they all came from the church. And I wanted to create a different voice, an independent voice that was objective and people could trust, you know. Most of the research I did were with people I knew and communities I've lived in as a Mormon myself. And I realized there were a lot of questions and answers. They want to, you know, they had questions. They had, they had troubling questions and they needed someone they could trust to actually discuss some of this. And most of these troubling questions came up in the oral history interview project I did for Carlton Graduate University, which is in their archives. I think it was called the Global Mormon Migration Project. I had 12 interviews and here you would see, if you listen to this interview, you would hear Nigerian Mormons expressing themselves and saying what they felt, because I asked questions about identity, how they could, uh, as either men or women and Mormons survive in their community. Because in Nigeria, Nigeria is a very religious society and there are different denominations, but the LDS church always looked upon, you know, with an eye of, uh, how would I put it, suspicion to a lot of Nigerians, you know, and who are not members. So it takes a lot for members to be accepted in their society. Apart from being members, yes, they come to church and have a community, but when they leave, they go to their own, you know, immediate society. And acceptance in this immediate society sometimes can be tough for some members, you know? And that's because of most religions in Nigeria, they have these open services, but most people see the elders church as being, um, how would I put conservative or so? Like people don't really know what's happening in, they have different notions about what is happening. Are they having a sacrifice? Are they killing some like when you go on the streets of Nigeria and ask people, have you heard of the Mormon church? Because it's very close to Mammon. They say, ah, did you, no, no, no. You know, they start telling you, asking you questions. So this raised my interest in bringing like all these points to bear. And now it's not just the research I put out is not just for Mormons. Not Mormons are reading them and getting to understand more about that community. And um, yeah, I think that's just the flair for it. Like, okay, it's a new subject. Let me get to encourage scholars to look into this area and, um, yeah. So Latter-day Saints are a kind of minority religion then in Nigeria. Is that right? Certainly, certainly. And what are the, what are the main Christian denominations, but also some of the other major religions in Nigeria and how, what does that look like? Okay. The major religions in Nigeria are mostly Pentecostal and Catholics and the Pentecostal are divided into different segments, you know, but all these segments have historical um, relevance to the societies they are in. You know, most of the Catholic and the Pentecostal churches you see, which are big, the Anglican, the Baptist, the Redeemed, there are a lot of them. 
they have um, cultural connections to most of the societies where they sprang up from. So it's more a communal church than just a church. So most of these churches have tried to adopt cultural practices into their worship, you know. Now in Catholic church, you have dance, you have worship songs, and these are cultural elements that exist in the African culture originally. People always want to, it's a festive thing. When it's worship, even when we do the African traditional religion, it's a festive thing. There's drum, there's dance, and um, there's traditional dressing. So this dynamic was actually what made this church is more prominent because they evolve. They evolve with the cultural trend. They follow norms. They are culturally sensitive to the people in their communal environment like. So it's natural that people would rather would rather go there than come to the LDS church because most of them get to investigate one or twice and they see it's not like the pattern they are used to. Even churches that used to use hymn, the Anglican that used to use very, I, I've compared the hymns in Anglican and the uh, church hymn. I've seen some few similarities, you know. They've kind of like hyped it up now, you know. They, it's not just the piano play, like, you know, there's this festive feeling in this church. So I think that's one of the dynamics that makes them uh, quite different. So you talk about a couple of things just now. You said there are some, not just cultural, but really deeply rooted religious expectations and religious, even aesthetic, maybe needs of people in West Africa coming from either African traditional religion or from Pentecostalism or some of these other more expressive, ecstatic sorts of religion with things like music, but also dress. I mean, can you say a little bit more about dress and, and how dress in the LDS church differs from from uh, traditional dress? Yes, yeah, Stephen. I think dressing is a very big part of culture. And in the LDS church, there is this pattern of our dressing. We know our dressing is white and, um, you know, with a tie. And this pattern of dressing is to a lot of Nigerians. I wouldn't speak for a lot of people, actually. To some that I've spoken to, they would rather be in their traditional attire, which is more freer, looking at the uh, how would I put it? The weather and the temperature in Africa. You know, most times we get close to 50 degrees or 45 and having a tie on and walking like maybe 15 minutes from your home to a distance, you know. Uh, since I came to Canada, my white shirt doesn't get as dirty as it gets when I was in West Africa, <laughs> like the neck area, you know. So putting all this into consideration, allowing what happened in Tonga happen in some societies by understanding is this what you people would like? Would you like more? freedom when it comes to dressing you could decide to wear your white you could decide to wear anything but that is not the way it is you know it's not like the church is imposing but it's like this is the way it is and this is the way it has to be you know the church might not say that it is but that is like the way most west africans feel like you have to have your white shirt on and you know to really feel priesthood i've even heard it i've heard it once like i heard it from a member like we're supposed to give a blessing and he said, no, I have to go put my white. I'm not on priesthood if I don't wear my white. I said, no, man, you can't do this. Your priesthood is not, it's not on your white shirt, you know? So it's, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot when it comes to culture. So what happened in Tonga and Samoa, it's something that can happen anywhere. And it goes to language too, Stephen. It goes to language. It's something like, I noticed that there was, there's a word in Akwaibom in Nigeria. It's one of the fastest growing words. And should I tell you why? It's because they have most of their services in their traditional language. You have these people who are illiterate in English, 
but literate in their language. Now you're giving them a chance to know more about the church in their language, like services are held in, the, in their language. So these are things that, looking at it, 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 it's actually going to help the church because if you consider these things and find a way to de-Westernize, you know, the Mormon church in West Africa and try to create a symbiotic relationship between the American culture, which to me, Mormonism still represents, and the African culture. You know, it should be like a hybrid thing, not totally westernized. It's really, really westernized. Look at what I just told you. It, it looked funny, but like he couldn't, he didn't even believe he had the priesthood unless he had the white one. So if there was an emergency, he would have to start looking for a white shirt, you know? So it, it, it's a lot. It's a lot. So yeah, talk, I mean, talk more about language. So what are the, the languages that are primarily spoken in Nigeria? Nigeria is a country that is very multi-diverse when it comes to languages, you know? And from the state I come from, I'm from Delta State in Nigeria. At least we have over 300 dialects from just one state, you know? Uh, so in Nigeria, the major languages would be Yoruba, Hausa, Igbo. But there are languages which are minority languages which are demographically popular. So I most times try to refrain from saying the three major languages are because... There are other languages, but because they are minorities, they tend not to add them to, you know, like the Aquaibom, maybe BBO, but they have a large demographic area, you know? So there are a lot of languages and these languages, I think so far so good. The church have been trying to translate the hymn to Yoruba. That one, I, at least I know two people who go to Salt Lake from Nigeria sometimes to work on this hymn. So yes, something like that, trying to encourage prayers in traditional languages. You know, which was already happening in my world. I had to tell my bishop, like, allow this woman pray. I know you don't want her to pray because you know she doesn't speak English, but let her pray in Yoruba. We would, we would hear, hear the amen and amen to it, you know? So <laughs> allow, you know, allow people to be able to worship freely, um, not being bad by language, dressing, mode of worship that would have to take the church to, you know, find something to actually, but the little things that could make worship less automatic and more, more liberal. So you're, you're the oral histories that you conducted with the Claremont Graduate University's Global Mormon Migration Project. Migration Project. Yeah, thank you. So the research that you did with them, you published an article with religions talking about feelings of isolation among Latter-day Saints in Nigeria. And so we've talked about a couple of those things, things like the language in which services are offered, the kinds of cultural expectations, both within and outside the church, of what goes on in a Mormon worship service. And you know, are there strange things? You know, this is, is this a cult kind of thing, which, you know, that's not, that's not unique to Nigeria. Of course, there's, that happens other places as well, but, but also things like people have expectations about what kinds of clothes they need to wear. And what are the, what are some of the other things that, that stand out as, as challenges that people are expressing as, as isolation from their, their communities that they're a part of? I think one other challenge would be the fact that as a moment, right? It, it takes a lot, mostly in a society, you'd be maybe one or two moments in a community of over a hundred or so. And these communities see the way you, most, a lot of moments are really nice. And I think that's why it's been easy for them to integrate. The people I was talking about the isolation and the integration, you know, it, it's the fact that, okay, most of them are trustworthy and uh, nice. So they could easily break the barriers in the society. But I know in societies, 
the way people look at cults in Nigeria or in Africa is quite different, you know. It's like, so if they have a notion or if they have a thought that this place looks like a cult, it actually bars every other thing, you know. Most neighbors wouldn't want their kids playing with your kids because they don't know what your kids have been into or what, you know. And uh, cuts, it cuts across a lot of things. Interpersonal relationship, communal relationship, gossip. and uh, It's a lot of things. Like, at the moment, you need to live with a lot of things that goes beyond just your worship in church. You need to live with the fact that, okay, if anything were to happen in an environment, you'll be the first people are going to try to suspect. And people don't really know you because... The same life you have in church is the same life you live in. You're conservative. You stay to yourself. You just have your church stuff, your family stuff. And uh, there's really this communal sense because, you know, once you go out, you already label the moment. Like, oh, he's here now. Let's listen, you know. And uh, there's always something, someone expecting you to say something wrong or right. To a lot of them I've spoken to, they mostly live their life isolated or in time. If they have a relationship, it's just within moments, you know, like. So it sounds like there's a sense of community among Latter-day Saints that doesn't translate outside of that to their home communities. I mean, do you see the expansion of the LDS church primarily in rural regions or in the more metropolitan areas? I think for the regions I stayed, it, it, it would be the more metropolitan areas because of the, the language. The fact that in metropolitan areas, you mostly see a lot of people who are literate in English. So membership is more in the metropolitan areas. But there are few rural areas that thrive, just like the acquired bomb example I gave, due to the language. So I think if there were if there were more services in the rural areas with indigenous languages, actually it will surpass membership in the metropolitan area. Because the metropolitan area is mostly, you meet people from different parts. So English is is understandable if, mem if members are, are connected by English. But in the rural area, it's mostly a monolithic language, just one language or so in a big demographic area. You have very few people who are, who are not uh, from that area. So it is easier to actually have more members there using that language. But in the metropolitan area, English works perfectly because you have a lot of people coming from different parts. So, Amaji, it sounds like there are really high social costs to joining the church in Nigeria. What attracts people about joining a church where there are such high social costs and the stigmas attached to things like, you know, expectations about cults? I think one thing that attracts people, and one thing that always resonates with all Africans, I would want to say, is family, a sense of family. And the church is number one in that. I'm not giving them to, to endorse them or whatever, but when it comes to a sense of family, and I think that is one thing that makes it quite different. The church acts a lot of emphasis. There's a lot of emphasis when it comes to family and staying together and loving your children. And that's one thing that will resonate with any African. And um, I think that's one thing a lot of people are willing to pay. Most people pay even prices, enough price to get how would I get disowned by their own immediate family, you know? <laughs> like being a member, your father is telling you, once you become a member, uh, you're not my son, you're not my daughter. But these people have this sense of the fact that they can have a nuclear family, and which is what the church encourages mostly. The fact that they can have a nuclear family and they can love the family based on the way the church is, uh, how would I put it, the 
scriptures and everything, the sermons are, are constructed. So I think the sense of family is one of the biggest draw for people who come to the church and stay in the church. I mean, another question here would be, what about, you know, the, the church has a fairly peculiar attitude towards education that for a long time, you know, many decades, culturally Mormon attitude, but also the, the official attitude has been get as much education as you can go out and get it, you know, university degrees, you get trade education, whatever education is available, get that. Do you find that a lot of people in Nigeria are either getting lots of education in country or traveling like you to other countries to get education? Is that, is that something that Latter-day Saints in Nigeria do? Yeah, at least the few I know. I think education too will be another point at why people come to the church because, uh, I at least I've met like two or three people who came to the church and were able to learn how to write and read and do the stuff in English. And it was really a pointer for them to stay behind. Like this was where they were able to learn how to speak and read English. So I think, uh, yeah. And the other thing is, I think of recent, there was this program that came, the uh, BYU pathway and, um, uh, it gave a lot of Nigerians the opportunity to go to high school because now the system in Nigeria, the educational system in Nigeria is, uh, I wouldn't want to say it here, but like they are, they've been on strike for four months now. So all these things is according to Lata young, Lata, not even just young, because I actually did the program to for coming that I did, um, did I, I think a certificate, it is all certificate and did the pathway. I did that to encourage a lot of youth to hear my word, which a lot of them are actually uh, doing programming and all those stuff. And I think that was a blessing, you know, to them because they don't get, they don't get limited by the educational system in Nigeria. The education continues in as much as they are willing to take units and uh, fulfill the requirements. So, yeah, I think education is one of the strong points too for people because come to think of it, most of the churches in Nigeria, and I'll say this boldly, have universities, but the unfortunate thing is 90% of their membership can't even attend these universities. I couldn't even have attended any of these private universities, you know, and they are owned by religious bodies. So it's quite a shame, you know, and having the LDS church bring something like BYU pathway, which I think their tuition is based on demographic um, GDPA or whatever, how much is made in that area. So it's quite easy for people to actually go to this kind of schools at their own pace, you know? To your knowledge, is that limited to Latter-day Saints or is this something that's more general? No, 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 no. It's generally available, actually. I, at least I think I brought two or three professors in UI, their kids. So if you imagine a professor not willing to allow their kids stay in the normal university system, I think I took one or two of them to register for their kids to register for the course. So yeah, it's not, it's not just for members. It's open to everyone. So, I mean, what, what's next for you, uh, Amichi, in terms of uh, research on Mormonism in Nigeria, in West Africa more generally? What, what do you see as your next avenue of research? First, Stephen, let's talk about the limitations of research. <laughs> yes, <I was> <laughs> that, you know, it's, resources is quite needed when it comes to research. Actually, research that is, um, that is as uh, novel as mine, you know, there are limitations to resources. There are limitations to access to materials. There are limitations to a lot of things, you know. And um, I was able to do most of the research I did because I was able to get some few equipment when I did the oral history project with CGU. 
and I'm still using some of those equipments, like for the, the other research I intend to do here. I'm actually going to look into, I want to do an oral interview project here for CGU also, looking at black migrants who, so that's one of the things I'm planning to do, black migrants who come from Africa, who are in Canada, and trying to ask them similar questions, but with a little slight changes, understanding how the identity and how they've been able to adapt to being a Mormon who have left Africa, maybe in Cameroon. And so this one is more wide. It's not just um, Nigeria. I'm looking at members who are Nigerians, Congolese, Cameroonians who came from other parts who are living here and have been living here as members. So back to the limitations, like there are limitations to research. And uh, like what I'm doing in West Africa or in Nigeria, I would like to do the same thing most of the, in most of the countries in West Africa, but it would take time and money that's setting <laughs> and resources because I would have to live in these areas. But the thing is, it's so much work. As we spoke before we started recording, it's so much work for me to do. And I, I, I personally would want to act as a mentor and bring, a, bring up a crop of scholars from at least one from each of these countries who can actually, I'm indigenous in Nigeria. I can be an expert in Nigeria. I can actually attempt there, but with their help, it will be more better. I would understand their society better. So this is where I say resources is limited. So I think if the church really wants to get information that are genuine and objective and are from the indigents, then research should be encouraged. Like indigenous research should be encouraged that are facilitated by indigents. And that's why I said, if I'm going to do, I have the same dream of having this global Mormon, this um, West African Mormon research come up like crop up, but I want it to be indigents. I'm not trying to be, you know, but because they know more, you know, you can't, you can, even if you're a scholar from anywhere, you can't know more than the people who have lived there or who live there, you know, so getting scholars in, so these where resources coming, it's, it's going to be a lot of thousands because, you know, it, it takes facilitation going from Ghana, I tell one Ghana, Benin Republic, but we like we have all of them around. So that's part of like the big project I'm thinking. But the little ones are the ones I'm doing now, trying to get the stories of moments who live in black descent moments who live in Canada. Uh, I'm probably going to go to Ottawa, Toronto, and I'm going to do in Montreal too, try to get a little bit of the demography. And I'm limited too by resources too, so that <laughs> I have to choose these three regions. So it's a it, it is going to be a great field actually because I think. Uh, the Western world have had a lot of research by um, researchers who are members, who are who, who are indigenous, like who are Westerners, you know. And I think uh, Africans and and all other parts should this should be encouraged. It should be a global project for the church and for other academic academic bodies, you know. Like get to understand Mormonism is a big religion, you know. And understanding it. Understanding it is, it takes a, if this project is something probably might be a 10 year project, it's not a project that, you know, because having to understand, because if you want to do this research and understand these people, they need to trust you. So if I'm bringing a crop of scholars, I need to make sure they get the trust of these people so that they can speak for you. And that's why I was able, if you check the research I did in Nigeria, you see like it was really detailed. They were willing to speak about anything. I, that's, this is fantastic. Um, Amici, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. You've talked about how the need to cultivate indigenous scholars in West Africa and no doubt within Africa more broadly, um, but specifically in your case in West Africa, are there any scholars working on West Africa, indigenous scholars who we should be aware of? For now, I don't know of any. And I think for now, I don't know of any. 
I think most of the ones I know are are Westerners. Uh, so I don't think of, I don't I, I don't know any indigenous because I, I have checked my identity. So I think this why this way it comes in. Like I actually my first stop would be Ghana because I want to start with Ghana and see and see. And I'm thinking of that trip maybe in the next two months. I want to actually stop there and see what's happening and um, talk to people. Go to I think they have a BYU pathway. Go to BYU and see if there's anyone who is willing and because it's a dedicated work. Stephen, you know, he's not just been interested in it. That's Amaechi Okafor talking about Mormon studies and Latter-day Saints in West Africa. Thanks for joining me today, Amaechi. Thanks you a lot, Steve. Thanks for listening. This show is made possible by the Mormon Studies Program at the University of Virginia. To learn how to support us, email Kathleen Flake at mormonstudies@virginia.edu. Music for this episode is used by permission from Ben Howington. The track name is Wayfaring Stranger. Hear more at mormonguitar.com.